welcome to another ABC Radio National podcast. For more information, go to abc.net.au slash rn. Today I would like to speak to you about technological change. The word technology has a coldness and a distance that seems removed from human experience. There is high technology, which sounds almost religious, and there are techies, who are sometimes a little too expert in the art of technology. Fears about technology and the change it brings are nothing new. But in our day, these changes are accelerating. And their impact is a mix of the miraculous, the efficacious and the disorienting. Sentimentality sometimes blocks our path to the future. And it's always tempting to romanticise the rustic. So today I start with a simple and provocative proposition. Whinging about the technology will get you nowhere. The only way to deal with new technology that upends your job or your business model is to get out in front of it. Otherwise it will get out in front of you. Now I'm not saying that we should all become card-carrying geeks, but we do need to be contemporary and to comprehend the impact on our family and our society. A little later, I'll explain why I believe that technology, for all the disruptions it is causing, is on balance a very good thing. But before I do, I'd like to begin with a story about some of Australia's convicts. These were people who came to our country because of technological change. And I hope their story will provide a little historical perspective on the disruptions we are feeling in our own age. The people I have in mind lived in the late 18th and very early 19th centuries. They were from the western part of England and they worked in textiles. In other words, they were typical English countrymen living just before the Industrial Revolution. They worked mostly out of their own homes alongside their families and the prices and practices for their trade were set by long-standing regulation. Then something happened that shook this tidy little world to its core. In the late 1700s, a series of labour-saving inventions turned the status quo on its head. These early machines were crude. In terms of quality, they were no match for the best cloths produced by skilled artisans. But they had a crucial advantage they could produce cloth that was cheap. That was because they did not require as much manpower. Another way of putting this is that the new technology allowed textile producers to be more productive and consumers benefited because they had access to lower priced clothing and textiles. The traditional textile workers saw this as a threat. So they organized themselves and threatened owners who used the new technology to produce lower price goods. These threats were issued under the name of General Ludd or King Ludd. Ludd was supposedly a local folk hero who had destroyed two stocking frames in Leicestershire. And the Luddites didn't just threaten, they backed up their threats with physical attacks. So fierce were these attacks, the British government made the destruction of machinery a capital crime. And it sent in thousands of British troops to put down the workers' rebellion. This unrest began around 1811, and the workers who led it were the original Luddites. In many ways, 
The distress was understandable. The new technology turned the world upside down. It took them out of their homes, where they operated as independent contractors, and into the factory, where they were paid wages. It moved them from the countryside to the city. In the end, this new technology would help make the British textile industry a world leader, but the disruptions were real and painful. After a while, a number of the leading Luddites were arrested and brought to trial. Some were hanged, some were thrown into prison, and some were transported here to Australia, where they became among our first settlers. They were treated very harshly, but they were truly prisoners of the past. Today, attitudes are a little different, except for the occasional mad Frenchman who leads an assault on a local McDonald's. Nowadays, Luddites do not go in for physical attacks. Yet in many countries, people today are facing similar disruptions driven by technology, to their business models, to their livelihoods, to their homes and communities. We are in an era of unprecedented creative destruction, but there is far more being created than there is being destroyed. My own industry, news and entertainment, is feeling the impact too. We are in the midst of a shift from an industrial society to an information society, and the news and entertainment industry is right in the centre of the maelstrom. For me, personally, it has been a learning experience. And for us, collectively, the journey is just beginning. Think about the Wall Street trader, at least the one who still has a job, who now has instantaneous access to real-time prices around the world. Then there's the South Korean teenager who uses MySpace to download music and chat with a German friend who shares her taste in bands or the research scientist in Bangalore who can tap into the expertise of the best minds from around the world to help on a project to improve crop yields in the poorest parts of India. Yet even the beneficiaries worry that technology is more controlling than controlled. Workers fret for their jobs. Governments worry about people having access to information they no longer control. Corporate executives who once enjoyed quasi-monopolies, now lose sleep, fearing that some little icon on someone's desktop is going to wipe away their entire business. And then there are the couples whose marriages are in turmoil because the executive sleeps with a buzzing blackberry by the bedside and compulsively answers email at the breakfast table. As the chief executive of a global media and entertainment company, I can tell you that I feel these challenges daily. Technology is destroying the business models we have relied on for decades. That is especially true for those whose business models have been based on a one-size-fits-all approach to their customers. Think, for example, of the giant American television networks that are finding their mass audience shrinking with every passing day. Why? Because people suddenly have a growing multitude of choices, and they are rightly exercising those choices. Let me give you another example, which is painful for those who own and love newspapers. In the old days, a crucial source of revenue for a local newspaper was its classified advertisements. 
If you wanted to sell your car or rent out an apartment, the classifieds were about your only choice of matching a buyer or seller. In little more than a decade, this model has become obsolete. The near monopoly that newspapers classifieds once enjoyed has been overtaken by websites like Craigslist and realestate.com. For consumers, this is good news because it's become easier and cheaper for you to buy and sell what you want. But it is costing newspapers millions in vital revenues that they used to take for granted. In this environment, it's understandable that people on the losing end worry about where the information revolution is taking us. So it can be easy to become pessimistic about the future. But I believe technology is ushering in a new golden age for humankind. I also believe that technology is making the human side of the business equation, skills and knowledge, more valuable than ever. And I believe that societies that want to prosper in this new age need to cultivate a spirit of learning and flexibility and achievement. So today I would like to talk with you about three subjects. First, why technology is a good thing, despite the unsettling changes it brings. Second, in business terms, how technology is putting a greater premium on what is awkwardly called human capital. Finally, I want to say something about what all this means for Australia's future. Let me start with why advances in information technology are a good thing. A moment ago, I spoke of how advances in information technology are challenging the accepted ways of doing things. That means that businesses are going to have to work harder to keep their customers. That includes companies like mine and consumers like you. The challenge is clear, but so is history. Each improvement in information technology we have seen in the past, beginning with Gutenberg's press and continuing with radio and television, has opened up access to more news and entertainment for millions more people who previously couldn't get or afford it. There is no reason to think the trend will be different this time, except that this time the access will be universal and the impact will be more profound. History also shows that with each new advance, existing businesses are forced to become more creative and relevant to their customers. Once upon a time, the media and entertainment companies could count on the huge upfront investments that discouraged competitors from entering the business. But in many sectors, the barriers to entry have never been lower and the opportunities for the energetic and the creative have never been greater. This competition is becoming more intense every day because technology now allows the little guy to do what once required a huge corporation. Look at the Drudge Report. Matt Drudge doesn't really create content. Instead, he finds content that he thinks is interesting and puts it up on one of the Internet's simplest pages. Readers come because they trust his judgment. And he is showing that good news judgment is something that can add value. Even those who don't like him, including many editors and reporters, click onto his website every day. In other words, with his single web page, 
Drudge has succeeded in challenging all the leading media companies of our day, including mine. And he's done it all with minimal start-up costs. A computer, a modem, and some space on a server. When someone uses technology this way, you benefit as a consumer. And it's not just the internet. Just think of all the things that you can do now because of technology. Things that would have been impossible just 20 years ago. If you want to find out the status of a trade bill in the United States Congress, you can access it from your desktop. If you're a footy fan living in Jakarta, you can click onto the Melbourne Herald Sun and see how the Cats did against the Hawks. If you're in Dubai and you want to know the euro-dollar rate and make a trade a few seconds later, it's never been easier to make or to lose money. In other words, you can do more of what you want to do, and you can do it in less time and at less cost. That makes you more efficient. When you apply these marginal improvements across an entire country, profits are increased, friends are made, and the traditionally disadvantaged have greater access to information than at any time in our shared history. The market encourages the spread of technology because businesses have an incentive to attract more and more customers. That's why technological breakthroughs that start out as expensive luxuries quickly become everyday necessities. This year, in India and China alone, 200 million cell phones will be sold. But technology will do you no good unless you have men and women who know how to take advantage of it. That leads me to my second point, the growing importance of human capital. In other words, an educated and adaptable population. As technology levels the playing field, the human factor becomes more important. In plain English, if you run a business, you need good people more than ever. That's because computers will never substitute for common sense and good judgment. They will never have empathy either. To be successful, a business needs people who see the big picture, who can think critically and who have strong character. Economists call these skills human capital. You won't find this capital listed on a corporate balance sheet, but it is the most valuable asset a company has. If you talk to any chief executive about his number one challenge today, he'll probably not say technology. It's far more likely he will say his top challenge is attracting and retaining talented people. Back in 1992, Bill Gates talked about this in an interview with Forbes magazine. Here's how he put it. Take our 20 best people away, and I will tell you that Microsoft would become an unimportant company. In other words, what separates Microsoft from the competition is not software, it's human beings. That is why companies these days invest so heavily in helping employees develop their talents and sharpen their skills. Just as you need to refurbish plants and take care of other assets, if you want to keep your company in the lead, you need to invest in your people. If you are a worker, you have an even greater incentive to invest in yourself. We are long past the day when you took a job at a company and 40 years later, you retired after doing more or less the same thing every day. 
day after day. That mediocrity has been banished. My point is this. As technology advances, the premium for educated people with talent and judgment will increase. In the future, successful workers will be those who embrace a lifetime of learning. Those who don't will be left behind. That may sound harsh, but it is a truth we must face, and it is a great opportunity for us all. For most people, adapting to the changes that are coming will require moving out of comfort zones. Moving out of comfort zones begins with education. I'll say more about education in one of my next talks, but if we want to build an Australia where people are not left behind, we need to recognise that a first-class education is no longer a luxury. In our age, it is a fundamental civil right and necessity. The most important skill you will need in your careers is the ability to acquire new skills. At an absolute minimum, that means that every Australian ought to leave secondary school with a basic mastery of reading, writing and arithmetic. They should also have a love of knowledge and a sense of their own potential. And for that cherished outcome, we need teachers who inspire, not those who conspire to thwart change. But secondary education is only the bare minimum. At all levels, we need to set high standards and stick to them. At least in science, Australia has a pretty strong tradition. Of the 10 Nobel Prizes, that have been awarded to Australians since 1915. Nine were for science or medicine. Two other Australian scientists have won Nobel Prizes for work they did overseas. Another two Nobel winners have strong connections with Australia. This list of Nobel laureates includes the father and son team of William and Lawrence Bragg, Howard Walter Florey, Frank McFarlane Burnett, and Barry Marshall and Robin Warren. I'm not a scientist, so I won't pretend to understand the research for which they won their prizes. I do know that their contributions have helped turn penicillin into a lifesaver, revolutionised treatment for gastroduodenal ulcers, and provided the foundation for modern biotechnology and genetic engineering. In Australia today, we have many fine scientific research centres, but we have no large international centres of excellence. As a small nation, we will never be competitive in every sphere, but there is no excuse for failing to cultivate areas where we enjoy an advantage and where talented people from around the world are fighting to get in. And we need to buttress it with a legal, business and social environment designed to support a culture of excellence. In the past few years, Australian governments have made some strides in this direction. But Australia is a small country without the cushion of a large domestic market. We need to do more than catch up. We need to lead by example and by results. This is where our comfort can be a formidable enemy. Sometimes the most established countries are the most vulnerable because people in other parts of the world have more incentive to innovate. For example, mobile phone technology proliferated rapidly in places like India, 
China and Africa because people were fed up with the long waits they would have for a landline. The result was that some of the less developed nations have leapfrogged over us. For much of the past few decades, a good part of Australia's domestic debate has focused on immigration. Australia has done a reasonably good job of absorbing those who share our values and aspirations. At the same time, I believe we don't worry nearly enough about the flip side, whether Australia will build the kind of society that can and will continue to attract talented people from the outside, not to mention keeping the ones we have. This ability will grow even more important in the future, and the reason has to do with the fact of human nature. When people are linked to the outside world, they begin to make comparisons. They travel and see what the opportunities are like elsewhere, and they begin thinking about where they want to live and work and raise their families. Right now, Australia has many advantages. A democratic government, a relatively open economy, a beautiful environment, and a fundamentally tolerant society. In contrast, many of the world's most talented and ambitious are coming from societies that are unfree, where their cities are clogged with pollution, and where they enjoy few of the amenities we take for granted in Australia. But trade and technology means these countries are catching up with us, and they are catching up fast. None of this is to deny that technology can't be abused. The same technology that puts mobile phones within reach of people with less money by making them disposable can also be used by criminals to evade the police. The same internet that allows you to order the latest bestseller online also allows sex predators to trawl for victims in relative anonymity. And the same payment systems that allow you to buy something electronically help international drug lords launder money. These are all challenges that must be addressed. But just as we don't ban automobiles because thieves use cars to flee a crime scene, and we don't ban phones because some people use them to make obscene calls, we're not going to give up the advantages other technologies offer just because some people abuse them. I'm one of those who believe that free societies are more than capable of addressing the problems created by technology. And I have great faith that Australia can harness its potential to expand opportunity, promote freedom, and bring a better quality of life. Our motto has always been, she'll be right, mate, but she'll be right only if we make it right. Thank you. You've been listening to another ABC Radio National podcast. ABC Radio National, on air and online, with many of our programs available as podcasts or MP3 downloads. All the details at abc.net.au slash rn slash podcast. Podcast.